0: For me, my, I was going to get in trouble was kind of faceless in the sense that um, it wasn't one person. To me, my mind, it was very much either my governing body or some mysterious faceless lawyer because I would be sued or subpoenaed. And so to me, I felt like I had this kind of, kind of that big brother sensation. There wasn't anybody currently in front of me or in my mind. It wasn't my supervisors, but I felt like I was just under a thumb.
1: Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us, because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hey, revolutionaries, I'm back and I'm so grateful that you are too. If this is your first time listening, thank you. And today I am interviewing Renelle Bordage and Renelle has been someone I've had the pleasure to know since 2017 when our relationship began and Renelle is someone that I've been mentoring and she is incredible. Her story is profound and she has certainly learned to live outside of her conditioning and I'm just glad to be part of it. I'm watching Renelle and I'm in awe and even beyond this episode, I continue to meet with Renelle and be in awe of how she shows up in life and works to live outside of the boxes. So I really hope you enjoy this and I hope you'll visit the show notes. And check out my Monday Mind Ups email list that is all about remaining on track with the things that light you up and reframing your life, asking yourself the questions that generate the ahas. I hope you'll join. And you can find that in the show notes. And if you haven't checked out my Therapist Expanded Facebook page and my Instagram, I would love to keep serving you there with more free content. So without further ado, here is my interview with Renelle Bordage. Okay, so thank you so much, Ronelle, for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so
0: much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about all these exciting topics that we have ahead of us today.
1: Ditto. So I'm going to launch right in with our first question, which is, tell us about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field. A little bit about
0: myself. Originally from Canada, uh, but I now live in Paris and I also live part time in the Netherlands. And I kind of do, a, kind of wear multiple hats, hats nowadays versus what I used to wear uh, back when I was working only in Canada. So here, currently, I work as a therapist part time. The other part of that is that I work as a researcher in uh, clinical neuropsychology. I kind of yeah, have these two different aspects of my current work life, whereas prior I was just working psychotherapy full time, first in the medical clinic and then in a private practice. that's uh kind of my trajectory, and that's kind of what I'm about nowadays. Wonderful and where would you say your passions lie? Mm, I think it's similar to the fact that I'm wearing both hats. It would be that my passions lie in both worlds in the sense that. I love the connection that we can get from being therapists and working in therapy. So just the genuine relationships and and the connections that comes from those rich relationships that you can form with your clients. So that's really wonderful. And that's a passion of mine. However, from the research perspective, the passion is I love that I can contribute to society in a systemic manner. What's frustrating sometimes for me personally with the therapy piece is that I, you work with one individual at a time, which obviously has its merits, but I think I came to a certain point where I got frustrated with that and I wanted to try to see if I could be a little bit more, uh, what is the proactive side of the story? Is it, is it that I can maybe stop some of these people from having to need therapy at some certain point if I can have my research impact the system? that has led people to, to needing therapy. I think that that's what excites me about the research is the systemic impact that I can have potentially, hopefully, in helping people. So those, those are the two passions that I have.
1: I saw this image of like two halves of a circle. So it was like the half you're really trying to affect is the prevention, the understanding and prevention of mental health issues, right? For me, the half of the circle I'm trying to work on is changing the mental health system of those working in it. Like, so the therapist taking back the power so that we can change how mental health services are actually implemented. That's my whole thing here is about if we become completely empowered as therapists living our dreams, it changes the entire equation. And we may be less likely to accept things like, incredibly low insurance rates. I'm thinking about the US here. We'd be less willing to accept uh, a field that is dictated by what doctors believe is best when that's not necessarily a problem, but they're not the clinicians working or what supervisors and professors say. So it's like I see the two sides and I completely relate because to me, I want to affect systemic change as well.
0: Does that resonate? Absolutely, yeah. Earlier, as speaking about system change to help, you know, the clients that we see, and then there's obviously the other side of the coin as well, which is that we're in the system too as employees, as as practitioners, and yeah, the system is not working. I would say, a lot of the time, for either parties.
1: Yeah. Can you say more about any times you've noticed it hasn't worked for
0: you? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So when you graduate from a therapy program of course you're not working with a lot of experience and so it's quite common to find yourself uh hired in institutions where maybe the burnout rate is quite high where they do need to kind of you know grab as many employees as they can and so yeah so i found myself in a medical clinic which you know and it's not to say anything about that specific medical clinic you know my employer there did the best they could it's the system around that the medical clinic was a part of that made it in for me that was really i eventually not bearable. What do I mean by not bearable? I mean that what was expected of me and or maybe what I felt, either what was legitimately expected of me slash what I perceived, just felt so impossible to be able to achieve. It felt like my job was to... Well, first of all, I had, you know, just a slew of clients coming in all the time. So let's say if I had a day where I needed a mental health day, I, you know, that was a vacation day that I had to take off or that was, you know, it was, I don't know, the mentality was just kind of like you're, you're a bit of a machine and you're just kind of doing client after client after client because your job is to get people off the wait list and out the door. There is that kind of like feeling where you're always running and you're always trying to keep up and you don't have the time to take care of yourself. So that's like one component. Another component was the idea that, um, I felt for me personally, I felt like I, I Was seen as someone who needed to save. So not only did I have to constantly be working, constantly be kind of going through one person after another, and we also had, of course, limits on how many sessions we can have per person. And in all of that, also, I had to be this miracle worker that could solve every single person's problem. And if I had someone who came in who had, you know, seriously complex mental health challenges and diagnoses and what have you, well, I have six sessions save this person well that's not going to happen right i think it was just the combination of the rhythm of the structure of the system of just constantly going constantly getting people through the door and then also at the same time being expected to deliver this you know savior type high quality which of course you want to be high quality all the time but to do it in the speed and the structure that it was set up it was just it just felt it just felt like you were on a treadmill, and it was it was exhausting. I was so I became so depleted, both mentally, emotionally, and eventually I end up having a huge burnout because I just couldn't keep up with all the demands, whether realistic or perceived.
1: Wow, I imagine there are people listening, shaking their head, going, "Yeah, that is something they can relate to." In my experience, that is often the agency model sentence that's just the agency model and so it chews people up and spits them out because that's the only outcome that can really come from an unsustainable system is burnout compassion fatigue vicarious trauma i can absolutely relate in my own history with working in agency and it isn't to make anybody wrong it is a systemic problem absolutely
0: absolutely i i you know my employer she wasn't, you know, she didn't have a mental health background. She wasn't a therapist, right? She was running the medical clinic. And, you know, she couldn't have known just purely from that perspective what it was like to, to sit in my shoes and to be a therapist and to receive all that vicarious trauma and to be compassionately fatigued. She, for her, in her in her mind, this was just what was normalized, what was expected, what all the other therapists prior to me have done and what the future therapists will do. So, you know, she was just following the structure of things. So it's it's really, like you said, it's the system. But I was listening to you earlier when you listed those things like compassion, fatigue, burnout, and uh, vicarious trauma. In my mind, I just went, check, check, check. Like, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, it was really hard. It's amazing because I have already recorded an interview with a doctor. I'm not sure if when this releases, I'll have put that one out. And I've recorded one with... A woman who has a lot of the, she's a therapist, but she knows a lot of the history of like, how did we get here? Big question mark. How did this all happen? Oh, interesting. And she looked at some interesting uh, data from the 1700s when this started, this impossible goal went into medical training. And it really feels like we follow the whole medical model in a way in these agencies, the what you're talking about. And the hospital model and this kind of like endless working. And when we look at what is it that's the underlying one of the underlying causes of compassion fatigue, it is insurmountable suffering. It's like the constant exposure to insurmountable suffering and the feeling of like, it's impossible to ever, I don't know what to say here, accomplish the goal. It's just this endlessness. And I don't know how else to put it. But I know when I've sat with with doctors, I mean to hold them in, in innocence. They are not trained even as we are to take care of ourselves. That I've sat with doctors and it feels like they're not in the room. They're really protecting themselves. They're distant. It's like a robot is typing things into a computer, and I can feel what used to really aggravate me of this, like hello, I'm here needing your help. I now feel compassion because I can feel that they have the same thing we've experienced in industries like this, but at 15 minute intervals in Canada anyway, it's like 15 minutes of somebody's horrible suffering with a a problem they could never solve in 15 minutes. And then the next person, and then the next person. And you can feel, at least in my experience with some doctors, that that is there. The shutdown of the caring is the only way to protect against that kind of suffering.
0: Absolutely. A lot of my colleagues, of course, working in the medical clinic were physicians and they were the, the word that I would describe it would be numb. They become numb. And I remember uh, there was one physician I was talking to and she said, you know, I had one patient of hers was dying of cancer and she worked with this one patient for a really long time. The patient passed away and she said that she, she didn't feel anything and knew that she should and knew that it was probably there. But she was just, she had just become so numb that she couldn't even accept, because if you think about all the loss and the death, of course, that physicians experience, uh, yeah, she just has, she just became so numb and couldn't even let in the small grief of this relationship she had built with this person. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so it's, I agree that it's it's uh, intertwined and I'm really interested in hearing about kind of the history of it, like you were mentioning earlier, because yeah, it, it felt when I was in it, when I was on the, tr- I call it the treadmill, because again, it's co- coming back to the concept of never being able to get to the end. That really resonates with me. It really felt like I just, I kept on swimming and kept on trying to get to that end finish line, but I, I could never get there. I was running so hard and it, but I felt I was still in just, it just felt like I was never moving forward. I was still in that one spot. It's, uh, but it felt like this is just what was expected. This was normal. What, what do you mean? This isn't working for you. And then I had to... Then I started questioning myself on, is it me? Am I the one who... like, What's wrong with me that I can't keep up with this treadmill? And it took me quite some time to realize, oh, wait, it's not me. It's the system. It's the, it's the treadmill that I'm on. And I just need to get off this treadmill. And then I'll be fine. But it, it really took me some time because I, I really internalized like, oh, I must be... I just need to sleep more. I just need to work plan my day better, organize my hours better. I just need to be more efficient with my case notes. I just kept on finding reasons for internal reasons as to why I wasn't finishing, getting to that finish line. And no matter what I did, no matter what I changed, no matter how hard I tried to be more effective, more efficient, more whatever, I never got there still. And then finally I said, okay, if, what if it's not me? What if I, I'm perfectly effective and capable, but there's something else that's not working outside of me? And then that's when I started kind of thinking
1: about the treadmill. You've said so much there that I think is important. I actually have started calling these stages that therapists go through. The it's not you, it's me stage is the first one of like self-responsibility, self-blame. Let's just work harder because it's... Oh, you react. Oh, it's so common. And then the next stage is the it's not me, it's you. It's sort of like dating. I'm going to break up with this agency now. So as I've seen in my website copy and my intro episode, I can just hear those words and you you echoed that. And actually in interviewing someone else, they said the same thing about how we go to self-blame, this self-responsibility, which on the level of change is usually very helpful. I mean, empowerment is about owning what's ours and responsibility. But in these cases, it's a part of where we get stuck. And you said, You know, when I was saying earlier about doctors, and I said it's insurmountable, and what you're talking about, it really speaks to our cultural norms as well, which is this like promise of when, when I get it all done, I'll relax, but also of I'll just put my head down and work without ever being taught in these fields. In ours, I think it is taught, but to doctors, nurses, a lot of healthcare workers, the need to grieve, to stay, in touch with emotion and not have the endless suffering swallow that up and put in place numbness and barriers it's not talked about and i once did a presentation i'm laughing because it went over like rocks like i was standing (laughs) up in front of this crowd of health professionals teaching about compassion fatigue and then how to prevent compassion fatigue and i'm looking out at the sea of people talking about grieving and how that's the necessary ingredient of how do we prevent it is in the beginning when we're like, oh my, this is a lot of suffering, we start grieving. But in the grieving and the keeping our emotions open, we are much more likely to come to the place you did faster, which is to say, yeah. So we lose a lot of our best people because they want to, and not to say that people who shut themselves down are not our best people. They're coping the best they can. But a lot of people who still want to stay alive in the fields end up leaving. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I In my journey, I I asked myself that question many times. I asked myself, okay, well, maybe I'm just, maybe it's the field. Maybe it's the field of psychotherapy. Maybe I'm just not cut out for it. Maybe I was wrong and maybe I, this isn't what's what I'm made for, or what have you. And so there is some time where I definitely played with the idea of leaving the field as well, because I just... Couldn't disassociate in my mind the the career and the system. To me, in my mind, wherever I went with my career, it would be a similar experience, which of course is is actually really not true, and i've I've come to realize that later. But yeah, I think I was just so confused and lost and also having this be my first kind of full time career experience. It was, yeah, it made it harder to disassociate what was therapy and what was the system.
1: Mm-hmm. And coming out from being trained as a student, I mean, education has a major hierarchy and we are we need to follow the direction of those who are marking us and then those who are supervising us. And then this is the, the way we grow up from very young kids is that people in power tell us what to do and then we're supposed to do it. Or there's consequences. And then you come into a job, and I'll speak for myself coming into a job. I've always been pretty rebellious, but if something made sense to me, it would be like, yes, I'm going to do this. It became a moral distress for me that these systems did not feel like they were in people's best interest. But I am sort of like less obedient, I would say, I always have been, but I'm still on that spectrum of like, this person controls my livelihood, so I should probably do what they say. Most people come in and yeah, they're, why would they question it? This person who's in power is saying, do X, Y, and Z. And that's what everybody does. You mentioned that. That's what the people before, and that's what the people after. And you might as well have two heads when you say, that's what I got from you when you were saying it, was people didn't understand when you said this is not working out. Yeah, Exactly. People didn't understand. And
0: also to circle back to what you mentioned earlier about the people who train us. So there's a system that's impossible or feels impossible to me, it did. And then coming out of my, my training, one of the main messages that I got from my training was exactly that, that if you step out a line, whatever that metaphorical line is, then yeah, there'll be consequences. So I think that there's a big part of me that stayed longer than I should have in the system that wasn't working for me because I thought to myself, well, this is A, just what it is. B, people are not acknowledging that maybe it shouldn't be this way. And also C, what if I change things? What are those consequences going to be? Can I live with those consequences? And am I going to get in trouble if I change things and try to, yeah, make things work better for me? it was just this kind of, I felt between like, you know, the classic stuck between a rock and a hard place. It felt like I knew this wasn't working, but it also felt like I didn't have permission to change
1: it. Oh yeah. It's something that I hold as a supervisor when I'm in my clinical supervisor role. Here I'm in my, you know, fulfillment coach for therapist role. When I'm in my clinical supervisor role, it is something I know is so important is that if I hold people's projections, not own them, but hold the projections of the power I have, and I really do have power in that role, especially when I'm training students, it's the power I've been given, their school wants me to evaluate them. I need to be responsible in the in the clinical supervisor role, I used air quotes, but I act responsibly instead of be responsible by holding the projections about people's hierarchical systems and their oppression, and it comes up where people look at me and react to that power. And I, I'm i there for it because I know it can be and is a corrective experience when I don't get anyone in trouble or anything. They're not in trouble ever. And I was in a supervision yesterday actually talking about this openly because the person is reacting very strongly to their own stuff. They realize they're bringing in all of that conditioning of oppression and power and hierarchy. And here I am reflecting that, but saying, I know you can do this and I really will never get you in trouble. What does that look like? You will never be made to be in trouble. And they're like, I want to believe you, but it's very hard. Now that isn't to say I'm not going to give feedback. That isn't to say that there won't be places where there's interventions. But what I like to do is have less expectation and more agreements and not get anyone in trouble. Like It's just that punishment, fear piece. But it's amazing because the things I've been told about myself by supervisees are incredible. Where I hold the projection but don't own it, they get to see that it had nothing to do with me. We're just so... I want to say, kind of wounded around this kind of oppression that our culture is really built on. I mean, yeah. And, and I get it. When you have a two year old, you don't want them to run into the road. So it starts early that we need to be stopping. And, but the getting in trouble is fascinating because it comes up with full grown adults. All the time in the clinical supervisory relationship, because it's a chance to heal so much of this power stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's um, for me, my I was going to get in trouble was kind of faceless in the sense that um, it wasn't one person. To me, my mind it was very much either my governing body mm-hmm. or some mysterious faceless lawyer because I would be sued or subpoenaed. And so, to me, I felt like I had this kind of kind of that big brother sensation. There wasn't anybody currently in front of me or in my environment. It wasn't my supervisors, but I felt like I was just under a thumb of sorts that I had to, that I had to behave a certain way. And that if I crossed any kind of line, that it, which of course you wouldn't want to do, but of course I had misperceptions about where those lines were. So for example, acting responsibly versus being responsible, there are times where to me, that felt like, again, there's kind of a type of sensation, which is if you're working with someone who is really not doing well, I often felt like, oh, well, my duty per legislation is to save this person. But the reality is that we know that we can't save anybody. I can't watch someone 24-7 to make sure that they're safe all the time. That's not possible. So where's that line between acting responsible in a certain situation and then trying to save someone. And that's the line that I constantly tried to tightrope walk. And it I, it was exhausting. It was so beyond exhausting. And I walked that tightrope because I was afraid of Big Brother kind of, yeah, getting in trouble if I didn't try to save someone that maybe Big Brother thought that I should save.
1: Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. Because you're not alone. And I've seen this. It can be a nameless, faceless kind of macro fear of Colleges governing bodies. And then for some people, it's the it's sort of the fear of the parents of the clients they're working with. It's more like in their face, or it's the fear they're going to screw up. And the responsibility comes in there. The it's the power and responsibility um, are really the choice points and the sticky points that I see with therapists. So, and sometimes it's exactly what you're describing. I've heard other therapists as well. Say the same thing. It's like the college is just looming. And when they explore it, same as what you're saying, they can't find something that's like evidence, but it doesn't matter. And I, to me, it actually speaks to the bigger macro level disempowerment and power structures that I was referencing earlier and how, like, from our earliest moments, we really can get that message. And then you go to school. Yeah. And I mean, I'm speaking about North American culture. So I don't actually know if I went to school in Finland, where I understand the education to be somewhat different, if people would, you know, I would wonder about this, if it would be such a systemic kind of big brother feeling. I also wonder, you are living between two very different cultures right now. The Netherlands, such innovators, uh, not having tons of these hangups. I mean, you've shared that with me, that they are not liability- phobic it it doesn't work like that i don't know about france but just for me it's very beneficial to look outside of our system when something feels impossible as well because when people are hearing this if this all sounds well and good and it's like but how do we change it it's the it's the google effect think of the thing you want the most to change and find someone in the world who's doing it and it actually isn't very difficult truly to find someone who is doing the thing that feels impossible, to find a culture, even a whole group of people who are doing things differently.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was very much my experience. So when I was practicing in Canada, it felt like everywhere I went, whether it was yeah from a young age or whether it was my training or whether it was my working environment, it felt like this message of like, yep, yeah, like you have to go beyond your limits. Your, your work is your life and there are consequences if you don't follow this mentality. That kept on being confirmed. And then, yeah. And then at one point I decided to change things, came over to Europe. And my gosh, is it ever different? And it's almost as if like, I, I feel like I just kind of, I don't know, it felt like I went from having tunnel vision to just kind of putting my head up and looking around myself and kind of going, oh, wait a minute. There are so many other options here, right here in my periphery that I just wasn't looking at. And so now that I'm in Europe, yeah, the mentality is completely different. Like I was, I remember I was taking a a course in my second master's degree there. And she was talking about working with a client. And I don't remember the exact context, but I ended up asking a question, which was, so what is, what does insurance look like here? You know, let's say you get sued or subpoenaed by a client. How would you go? What does that look like insurance wise in the Netherlands? She was so confused because she goes, Uh, yeah I don't have. oh she was that's what it was she was practicing and I asked her about her practicing and she goes I don't have insurance and I I like my jaw dropped because I was like how could you not have insurance she goes yeah we're not as legislative here we're not as um yeah we're not really worried about getting sued or by our clients like that's not a thought in our minds our minds is just we're there to help and we trust that for the most part it's very visible that we're trying to help we're not seen as saviors we're just we're just helpers. We're just helping people. But there was like a very healthy mindset around what is providing help versus, say, having to save everybody. And then also, if you don't, then you're liable. You, completely different mentality, completely. In France as well. I mean, you can imagine <laughs> the French, you know, they're so laid back with absolutely everything. And of course, it trans it, it transpires as well in, in their practice. It's, it's not to say that they don't take things seriously, of course, but it's just a different mentality around what is the priority. And when I was working full-time in Canada, it felt like the priority was to protect myself. Like I remember being trained writing case notes because the way that I was trained to write case notes was, if your notes are subpoenaed, this is how you're supposed to write your case notes, which is such a strange way to train to train a therapist to write their case notes because at the end of the day, our case notes are for us. They're not, you know, sure they can be subpoenaed, but why am I being trained with that Possibility when it's really not all that common for someone to be subpoenaed, unless that they're working with a particular specialization. But yeah, I don't know. And so here it's just, no, no, this is for you. You write your cases as you see fit because they're for you. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I laugh because it seems so obvious now and so silly to kind of compare the two and go, well, obviously, this one, this option B fits better for me than option A. But yeah, there was a time where I thought it would mean possible to leave option A.
1: I could say so much about this. Yes, it's finding these examples is very important. And then listening to the conditioning, because you really said a statement there, it's like a mic drop statement about how different they are. When you said about the insurance, I felt like I could see a mic drop because there's probably people listening going like, what? They don't have insurance? And when you actually, this has been helpful for me, when you actually explore the true risks in North America, they are hyped. It is bark. It is not generally bite. You talk to a lawyer, they're like, wow, you guys are like the hard, one of the hardest to actually prosecute for anything, which I'm all for colleges because there are people who do things that are unethical. But it's even hard to prove that the colleges and the governing bodies, there is so much threat there. There's so much looming. And in reality, if you look at the facts, it is a story we're being sold for the most part. There are outliers, but I was speaking to a student yesterday, and they told me that one of the things that has haunted them is a story a professor told them about a therapist being hurt by a client. Very graphically awful story, and I, I was like, "Wow." They said, "Yeah, all, all my students in my cohort talk about it." And it was like, for that moment, I could see that that professor had confused love and fear. And that's where I believe we get so indoctrinated. The con- and the parenting, going back to that very beginning of, it's so important for me in my role to not confuse love and fear. That we often dress up, that we're being kind, we're helping, we're being loving by indoctrinating other people with all kinds of fear. No, it's just fear. Love looks very different. So when you talk about the Netherlands and you talk about France, I hear that they're more in touch with the purpose of helping, which to me actually comes from love.
0: Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. And to circle back to, you know, all bark and no bite, I completely agree with you. And it took me some time to mm-hmm. be able to agree with you. <laughs> like at first, I'm like, I don't know, it feels pretty real to me. But um, but no, actually, I, I yeah. If you if you think about it, it's absolutely true. It, it's a perception. But it was a trained perception. I was taught to perceive it in this way. You know, it just goes to show you that simply by changing my environment, not myself or how I practice or whatever, my perception is starting to shift because what's reflected in my environment here is different and kind of tying in with your last point there, which is that, yeah, they do. I think they do a better job of, of, I guess, also tying back to my initial comment about my passions. What I think really matters, which is to help people and they talk about, you know, making connections with people and the therapist-client relationship, you know, they're more concerned about what actually happens in the therapy dynamic than they are concerned about, okay, well, if they ever sued or subpoenaed, this is how you should write your case note. It's just, yeah, it's, it's hard to even describe, but it's just, it just feels like it's worlds apart. And I could feel like my shoulders just kind of melted. You know, I felt like for years... For years, I had like the first four years of my career, I had, you know, just my shoulders felt like they were like they were touching my ears because I just had so much stress carried in my body and eventually became normalized. Eventually, I didn't even know that it was there. And then now that I'm better and now that I have so much a healthier relationship with my career as a therapist, it's so stark now to compare the before and after. I knew at one point that I wasn't well in the before. But now, after in comparing and being able to look back, I was really unwell hmm. yeah it's it's just really kind of made me realize how important it is to be able to yeah kind of step outside the the mind frame that is taught, kind of step out of the outside of the tunnel vision, and be able to look around and see other options.
1: yeah, I am shaking my head a lot at resonating with what you're saying. I think where you're Comparing Europe and North America, where we're doing that, I think at the core of what all therapists want, I'm going to generalize here is that focus on, you know, why we got into this, which is to do this meaningful work. So that's beautiful. And I can completely understand how looking back, it's easy to see what you couldn't see in the moment. For me, it's been that I wouldn't take back my experience because that was like a, being thrown into the pan. And it was not easy to become complacent and go like, ah, well, maybe I'm a little burnout or whatever. No, it was like red alert, burnout, compassion, fatigue, vicarious trauma. And now that has changed how I see the entire field. So it was a real gift, but I couldn't see it for a long time in the moment either. So I'm very grateful for that. And I have some questions for you. My first question Uh, We've touched a bit on this, but I'd love to hear it in your words. What does mental health revolution mean to you?
0: So when I think about that, in this context, if we're talking about the therapist first, to me, it feels like the word that comes to mind is liberating and free. I think those words come to mind because I think that as a therapist, I felt so confined and so restricted, stuck. And when I think about mental health revolution, I, in my mind, I see those walls that I felt surrounded by be kind of blown out. And finally, I can breathe again. And finally, I can let my shoulders drop. And finally, I can still do this wonderful work, do it ethically, but not do it in this perspective of going above and beyond my limits to meet the system where it's at slash also feel like I have huge consequences to me if I don't meet those limits. So yeah, so to me, it's freedom and liberty and just breath of space to be able to be fully myself
1: in this role. Absolutely, because this is why we came here, to be fully ourselves. Thank you. And so can you tell us about a time, it's sort of two sides of the same coin, really, is how I see it, a time where you held yourself back From being who you really are. From taking a risk perhaps to go after a dream. And then the other side of the coin, a time when you really went for it. Like went after selfhood and took a risk and went after a dream. For sure.
0: I. There was a time where I was... So speaking to the piece about where I held myself back. There was a time where I was working both at the medical clinic and in the private practice. It's funny now. I see it now. But at the time, so I knew that I had the option to leave the medical clinic and to do the practice, private practice full-time. That option was available to me, but I never, I didn't take it until much later. I could have taken it so much earlier than, than I did. And I think at the time, I, I didn't take that opportunity. And sorry, the reason why this is important is because in the private practice, Given that it's a different system, that's an area where I could fully be myself, where I did feel like I could be the therapist that I wanted to be. But I didn't give myself permission to to step into the private practice full time because there was a part of me that felt like the medical clinic needed me, which is also kind of worked if you think about it. But uh, at the time, you know, there was all the senior therapists had left. I was the one that was most senior at the time. I was the one that was kind of in charge of the program. There's actually two different programs that I was in charge of both of the medical clinic and then a whole different other crisis program for two counties and i was i was I had a lot of responsibilities. I had kind of climbed the the corporate scale, if you will, and it felt like man, but i I do so much i and I contribute so much, and if I quit, then you know they're gonna be upset or like it's going to be really hard to replace. Because I would obviously do so much, I would go above and beyond. I would work overtime hours unpaid, <laughs> which I would never do now. Um, but you know, I I did so many things, and yeah, I, I there was a part of me that thought that they needed me, which they don't. They 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 don't. But I I definitely thought that they needed me. So that's that's why I didn't take the leap, and I didn't yeah go full time into private practice earlier, because I had kind of this warped perception of belonging to the system.
1: Mm. Wow, that was powerful. Belonging to the system. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's so much I could say about that. They needed me. And that reason that we don't go after our full selfhood and our full power is often those stories. And I say that knowing that I told myself that I've told myself that when I needed to make a big change to follow my selfhood is like how much it was going to impact my clients. And it's only later that I, Well, actually in the moment I started listening to my language about like, how am I going to break the news? Actually, that was a coach who helped me. They said, break the news. And I was like, Oh, this codependent culture. I was so frustrated because I had internalized that of this. Like, if I go after me, I will in some way hurt you. And I, I'm really standing in contrast to that now with therapist expanded in my life. But what you're saying is. It's the norm it's the apologizing for oh for so many things I even save apologies now for when I actually have a wronged someone hurt someone done something that impacted someone that way but I did it so instead of just saying sorry I need to tell you something you don't like and that's I try to really mean it but I hear it in our culture it's like sorry I have to set a boundary. Sorry, I need to take care of myself. Sorry that I can't endlessly look after your needs and I have my own. You can even see, like, I need to get into a different physical posture to speak like that, to shrink. But it is very culturally the norm in North America and especially for women. Yeah, we're here to please everybody and be liked, to be nice before we be safe and actualized.
0: Absolutely. I remember. Which, but just as a side note, I love your sorry because it's so now that I don't live in Canada anymore, I don't hear the Canadian accent around me. And that sorry was just so profoundly Canadian. And I loved it. I loved every <laughs> single minute of it. It was fantastic. <laughs> but yes, to come back to uh, what you mentioned, I, that re- I remember my heart was racing when I finally told my executive director that I was leaving. I felt so like. I, it took me weeks to build up to it, to get the, enough courage. And I felt exactly like you said, I felt like I had to apologize to pursue this big dream that I was chasing, which is the other side of the coin, which I will get to. I, Funny enough, when I told her, not only was she wonderful, because I mean, again, she herself was wonderful. It's, it's the system that's not. But also, she was so willing to work with me. She even asked, you know, oh, okay, so you're going back to school. Okay. Well, you know, she, and I hadn't told her the, the Europe part yet. And she goes, well, do you want to work part time? Do you want to? She was completely willing to work with me and to mold my entire career, which I think is ex- exceptional, but also something that I, I thought for sure that would not be. I, I thought it was impossible, impossible. And then she goes, oh, yeah, no problem. We can try to make things work. And I thought, "Hmm, this is not at all how I had perceived it.
1: But um, that is so anyway. Important. I just wanted to pause there for a moment. The same thing happened to me when I put in my notice when I worked in the agency in healthcare in the north in the Arctic. And it was like, what can we do to keep you? How can we help you? What can we do? And I thought to myself, fascinating, fascinating. And now I see what happened was that it is a story we tell ourselves about the systems can't be changed. I'm not saying that it's easy to change them. When I say this is a mental health revolution, it's simple. Simple because we go after what we most want and the system will change because we will change it just by going after what we want. We will innovate. We will stop taking insurance if we don't want to take it. We will do all the things and we'll watch the field change and we'll take our clients way further. When we step fully into selfhood, it's amazing. You know it when you're finally get access to something in the conscious awareness, you hear it come out of your client's mouth in the next session. It just had someone have this happen yesterday that I supervised when they became aware of something the next session the client reflected it back they had never mentioned this theme actually when we go after what it is that is claiming our power and our selfhood even there you saw the system go well how can we accommodate you even these systems that seem so broken asking for what we need they may or may not do it but it is so much the story that comes from our history and our culture that says we can't change it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What ended up ha- So to the other side of the coin, what ended up happening is that progressively, maybe for before I explain what changed and more context about what was, I was working full time, balancing the medical clinic, the private practice, and we were living rurally in Ontario. For me, I always had had two dreams in my life, two really big dreams. And one was to do a PhD and the other was to uh, live in Europe one day. Now they felt like really big dreams. And the thing is, is that I, you know, living where we did and doing the careers that I say we being my husband and I, you know, we kind of fell into this routine and we kind of fell into this rhythm and, you know, things were stable. Things were, you know, kind of the white picket fence kind of feel to it. But I wasn't happy right? Because of all the reasons that we've just discussed. And over time, I just kind of, this voice in my head kind of kept on saying, but you know, this can't be the end in the sense that I could have, technically speaking, have stayed there and that would have been my career. That's, that was absolutely a possibility with how stable we were both financially, but just in our routines and what have you. But there's this little voice that just kept on coming back no, we have to like, but your PhD, but living in Europe. Finally, after years of this kind of not being able to, it just was incessant. I was progressively realizing that I was unhappy. I finally did a full-blown burnout where I had just a summation of, you know, I, yeah, the compassion fatigue, decision-making fatigue. I was so depleted and so drained. Like I had nothing left to give. I didn't have energy for fun. All I wanted to do was sleep, just profound burnout. And then that was kind of the last straw. I came home one day and Ian and I, my husband and I sat down and we chatted and we go, okay, look, we're kind of at those famous crossroads where we can stay here because again, although I was unwell, I actually didn't realize how unwell I was. So I thought I could do this, I could stay here. Or we take a huge risk (laughs) and we change everything. And so that's what we did. So what, what I ended up doing is that firstly, I wanted to change the discipline that I was in. Although I still love counseling psychology, I always had a passion for, uh, neuropsychology. So I wanted to change the discipline. So I wanted to do a second master's degree and I also wanted to do my PhD in that discipline and I wanted to do it in Europe. So, you know, just like all of it, like I wanted, it felt like I wanted the world and that I was asking for the world. And luckily I have a really supportive partner who just went, okay, let's try we sold everything. We had furniture, we had cars, we sold it all. And this was during the pandemic. So this wasn't like, you know, this was in the, this was summer 2020, right? This is when we were just starting to realize this thing wasn't going away anytime soon. This is when it was starting to sink in that this might be our new reality. And things were still closed. Actually, the Netherlands, where we first immigrated to, the borders were still closed. And they, it's as soon as the borders open in early July that we left in late August to make sure that we can make it on time in case borders closed again. We sold everything. We got married in a backyard wedding because, of course, everything was closed for weddings. And then uh, we packed up all our things and got on a plane and left. And before we knew it, we were in a small town in the Netherlands that we had never been to before. And it was our new home. And then I started my master's degree. And at the same time, I had to negotiate the private practice in my mind. So what I mean by that is is that obviously I had to quit the medical clinic. But then the private practice, what happened with this is that um, the pandemic made uh, e-therapy that much more of a possibility for me. I hadn't actually gotten training in it before the pandemic. But there was a part of me that wasn't sure about it. That thought, ah, I don't know. I've only done in-person therapy up to this point. This is what resonates with me for now. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I'm so convinced on this whole e-therapy thing. And then, uh, then the pandemic hit and then we didn't have an option. And then I realized, oh, you know what? Actually, this works really well. And it might not work for everybody, but there is definitely a community of clients that this really worked for. So then I thought, huh, that's really interesting. Well, if I don't have to be in a room physically, then technically I could be anywhere in the world, right? And so then uh, I worked with you and I say I worked with you uh, in the sense that like, honestly, I was just kind of like, hey, do you mind if I do this? And it was just kind of like, yeah, sure. (laughs) There was just this kind of like, um, yeah, it, it wasn't really that much of a negotiation as I maybe had once thought it would be. And all of a sudden, honestly, more than anything else, I just gave myself permission to mold the private practice to what I needed it to be. So what I needed to to be moving forward into this new life where I was going to be studying full time is that I needed to work with few clients in the evenings and clients that weren't, say, acutely uh, in crisis or uh, suicidal. I couldn't obviously offer any kind of emergency kind of services or what have you. So I needed to work with people, you know, a certain population, let's say. I just went and did it. Like, I don't know. It was so much easier than I ever thought. it could. I just, yeah, I just had to give myself permission to let the private practice become what I needed to be for myself. Then I did it. Now it's working amazingly for me. So now my life is, um, I did end up doing that master's degree. And then through that, I got this opportunity where now I'm doing a PhD with Université de Paris-Cité here in Paris, where it's a shared PhD position between here and Rotterdam. And it's awesome. And so I do my PhD work during the day. And then in the evenings, I tend to have clients. I don't have too many a week. I might have four or five or something like that. And then that's it. And then that's my life now. And I'm so happy. (laughs) It's so much happier than I ever have been. And it all kind of stemmed from that place of finally giving myself permission to do all of these things. And of course, it helps to have privilege. It helps to have support. But for so, I could have done this so much earlier and I didn't because, I, because of this element of not giving oneself permission.
1: Mm. You have said so much today, Renelle, that I think is going to touch the lives of many people who are listening to this going, yeah, it may scare people. But I think a lot of people sit on that fence for a long, long time, seeing selfhood there, seeing the power, seeing the dream and the desires but not claiming them for all the reasons we've said today. Because of the things we've learned, all of our different conditionings around power, around going after what we want, around responsibility, around that our needs hurt people, our power impacts others negatively. And so you have just laid out the journey there of that, yep, we can be in that trance for a while. I was in that trance for a while. But as we go and we grasp what we want, because we don't want everything. You didn't dream of being a trucker from a young age and then not go after it. But people will often say like, well, how can I go after what I really want? And it's like, well, you don't want everything. You want what's already yours. You have a burning desire for the things that you came here to do and that don't go away. You said that voice is like in your ear. And people don't even need to know what to do to engage with this work. They just need to know they're not fulfilled. And that's enough because there's something wanting from deep within. And I love everything you've said. I'm just sitting here like shaking my head profusely because I I love what you've said. It's been a pleasure to watch your journey. But I also know that many, many people are at some place in that journey that are listening to this. Oh, it's very beneficial. Thank you.
0: I'm happy to share it. I'm happy to share it. It was, you know, and it's still, it, I'm still on that journey, but I, I can say that, you know, there were times where it was really hard. It was terrifying. You know, I remember the feeling of almost like wanting to throw up the moment where we were going through security to get on that plane. Because of course, again, I didn't know when we would be able to come back. I hadn't seen my family in about a year and a half already at that point. There, was, there were so many elements. And I remember thinking, like, I remember just, it felt like I just took a deep breath and just jumped off a cliff and trusted that I had wings. Turns out I did. And yeah, and I I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. And so if I can share my story and if it inspires anybody else to, yeah, to maybe start questioning, you know, how can I make this career, this life, whatever situation you might be in work better for me, I encourage you to do it because yeah, it is hard. Um, but my gosh, it is they're worth it.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for your time today, Ronelle. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution.